Hi, and welcome to Ask Me Anything Hours. My name is Dan Merrick. I'm the Director of Plant-Based Culinary and Development here at Ruby. And during this time is when we take the time out during the week to answer any of your questions culinary related. So again, my name is Dan Merrick. I uh, have been a, a plant-based chef for, wow, almost 15, maybe 18 years. Uh, so we usually try to keep these pretty plant-based um, and plant-based related. But we're going to dive right in. Um, and if you have any questions, feel free to type them in and we'll get them answered as soon as possible. So we're going to start off with uh, Dion's question about convection baking. So this is actually um, an interesting question. It's on a Viking gas stove, uh, has convection roast, true convection, convection bake, and bake. What's the difference between true convection and convection roast? Um, this is a great question, and this is actually something that's come up a little more recently as they've been adding them. And I did actually post a link here too. So you can actually um, go into that to get a little bit more detail. But more recently on um, ovens, you'll find a variety of these different kind of uh, convections. So a true, uh, uh, an American convection oven typically works um, where there's a heating element on the bottom of your oven, and then there's a fan in the back of your oven. And that fan basically starts to rotate the air around inside of your oven and it does it you know kind of at a medium pace basically and what that's basically doing is um if you have a cold object in the you know a baking tray or something like that that's actually cooling the air around the um the item itself so if you're rotating the air around that it's actually helping to heat it up quicker now that's an american style uh convection and that's kind of what has been uh, you know the standard in um, ovens in America for quite some time. Now, if you look at like air fryers, it's kind of like a step up. It actually blows the air really, really fast on the inside of those little air fryers to be able to move the air around quickly on that and this using the same heating element. Now, a true convection um, is something that's actually more used in Europe, but it's actually started to find its way um, into, this, uh, into the States. And on those functions, um, it's actually a little bit of a slower uh, rotation of the air on the inside, but it is using the heating element that's on the bottom of the oven, but also the heating elements at the top of the oven, which is typically used for... Um, doing a broil function so the heat coming down from the top so you're still getting both functions of heat on the top and the bottom of it but the true convection is actually moving the air between those two elements as well but you're using both of the heating elements instead of just one of them so uh the difference basically between true convection and convection roast is a different thing because convection roast is a function that actually moves it slower but it also helps to help kind of uh, like use it on meats a lot more, I guess, where you can actually, uh, you know, get a kind of a harder outside um, and keep the inside a little bit softer as well. So a lot of different, um, you know, convections out there. Unfortunately, there isn't like a standard, like this is always the way it is, but generally um, that is kind of the, the different versions of them. The convection, true convection, convection bake, and then the regular bake is just having the heating element from the bottom. So a um, couple different ways to be able to to use those, um, you know, some recipes will call for them, but not many do because not everybody has a true convection, um, you know, versus convection. Just remember that when you are using those convection 
functions with the air circulating like that that your uh whatever you're cooking will typically cook a little faster than it would on just your normal baking process because it is actually moving that air and keeping it um keeping it hot quicker as well so if you want more detail on that there's about six pages of notes on that on the link that i put on this through simply recipes it's actually a great little article on the topic um and i'm sure you'll learn something from it so great question dm and i uh, hope uh hope that helped out our next question here is from Janet. Chef Dan, is the liquid from any can of beans considered aquafaba? How long can the liquid be kept refrigerated? Thank you. So uh, aquafaba is typically the protein-rich liquid that's um, it basically comes from cooking uh, chickpeas is usually what we use aquafaba from. Now you can get that same kind of protein liquid from other kinds of beans, but traditionally you're getting it from, um, from a chickpea. Now that might be because they're also it's it's a clearer liquid, so you could have it from the white bean as well. But when we're talking about aquafaba, we're usually talking about the can uh, using it from chickpeas. Now it doesn't always have to be canned, so you can get uh, you know the aquafaba just from cooking the beans in that liquid as well, and it works quite well as well in different applications, from using it for thickeners, for doing meringues, different things like that as well too. Um, but I don't know if you'd actually call it aquafaba if it was from something like a black bean. I've never used um, you know the the liquid from uh, like a black bean or something like that in the same way I would use an aquafaba traditionally. I use it for other things, but usually it's just for the flavoring of something, you know, but um, aquafaba typically I know comes um, from the chickpea and how long can the liquid be kept refrigerated? So typically after opening the can, you can keep it for about four to five days afterward, as long as it's in the refrigerator in a sealed container. Um, just make sure it's not open in the fridge as well too. Um, and it will last, uh, you know, four to five days in the fridge, just like that. So typically if I'm going to be opening a can of chickpeas, I will usually pour out the aquafaba into a container and put it in my fridge just to be able to uh, hold on to it in case I do need it. Because every so often when you do need aquafaba, sometimes you don't know that you're going to need it until you do. So it's always good to have a little bit of it inside instead of just dumping it down the, the drain. So hope that helps, Janet. Michael S. Will there ever be a continuation, maybe a more advanced with many, many different breads from all over the world course in the Baking Breads Arts course. So uh, we do have a variety of different, um, you know, bread courses, um, including some that were uh, built by the French Pastry School, which are fantastic courses. So we do have a variety of different courses like that with a whole huge variety of different kinds of breads. So I would definitely, um, you know, have you take a look at those, Michael. Those are some great courses. Uh, there's three different ones off of that besides just the one that the Ruby um, offer offering as well. Um, but, you know, we are always uh, developing new courses for Ruby. Um, and uh, I, I I know we don't have one under a new bread course under development this very second, but that doesn't mean that we won't have one come up very soon. Um, a lot of that is from customer demand. Um, what, what everybody's kind of looking for on those. So the more people that are asking for more bread courses, the more likely we are to do something like that. So just meeting that demand where it is. Um, if you, you know, if, if you have taken all 
the the other courses that we have through bread as well i know that our facebook community is unbelievable for those courses as well it's a great sharing community and a great place to learn as well so that we can kind of interact with other people that have gone through the same things and um, might learn a couple things off of that as well but so at the moment there isn't a course under development but that's not to say that there it, there won't be in the near future um i just don't know of one that we're working on at the moment and typically since i'm one of the people that builds those i would know about it um so uh you know again more demand for it the more likely we are to make another course like that all right kathy uh, i would love to see a vegan bread course is that a possibility so very much in the same vein of that um you know we do have uh, a, a variety of different courses on uh breads but they are not vegan specific so um you know and that's really kind of uh, on demand at the moment. Um, that's something that we might have because we don't have anything specifically just vegan bread as a course. That might be something as a possibility we do, um, you know, sooner than later because of the other, uh, we have so many other bread courses. If we're looking to kind of fill a segment that we don't have, that might be something. We don't have something in production at the moment but it definitely is a possibility so uh just keep tuned in and we'll um see how that goes with us so uh hope that answers that renee can i use another type of mushroom if i can't find cremini yes you absolutely can um depending on the recipe uh creminis are very easily substituted out so you can use a white button mushroom you can use a baby bella you know instead of the cremini as well the flavor profiles are very similar but they act the same way when you're cooking them typically in the same way as well so if you can't find a cremini mushroom that's totally okay um you know using a white button um you know the baby bellas uh some of those other ones that are a little easier easier to find at a traditional grocery store, that's totally fine. You can sub substitute those ones out as well. Um, I also, you know, highly encourage you to try different kinds of mushrooms, you know, as you're at the store um, and you see a mushroom you've not tried before, try mixing it up a little bit. There's so many different kinds of mushrooms. There's so many great, uh, you know, benefits that you can get and out of mushrooms and vitamins out of mushrooms. Um, I try to, you know, include them very regularly in my meals. Um, and I encourage you to do the same. All right. Uh, our next question, I'm going to mispronounce this, so I'm just going to let it be at that. Um, but Chef Dan, can we use uh, the liquid as aquafaba, which is soaked in the chickpeas? Or any beans are lentil for one to two days prior to making breads or cakes. Um, let's see. I'll read that again. So can you use the liquid for one to two days after making the breads or the cakes? Um, I'm guessing if you're using aquafaba and you're making a bread, can you use it to one to day, two days later? Yes, you can. Um, so the same thing if you refrigerate it, it should last you know, from four to five days in the fridge and still keep the, the protein rich, you know, you want to definitely stir it up after you've, um, you know, stored it like that, but keeping in the refrigerator in a sealed container, um, just make sure to give it a good whisk, um, before you're using it again and it'll work just fine. Um, you know, one to two days later after making some of those four breads or cakes, um, or anything you're actually going to use the aquafa before. All right, so Renee, can you reuse the, the vegetables you used in the basic vegetable stocks? It seems to waste uh, to throw them out. We get this question quite regularly, Renee, and to, the answer always is, is, yeah, you can use them, but really by the time you've, you're done making the stock, you've actually um, taken out 
most of the essential vitamins and uh, nutrients out of those. And those vitamins and nutrients and flavor are now in the stock. So uh, you can use them. In fact, I see a lot of students in very inventive ways of you know, trying to reuse them from just blending them up in the soup, which is fine. Um, you know, the, you're going to get the fiber out of those, which is totally as well too, totally okay to be able to do as well. But generally, I'm going to take them out um, because they've served their usefulness. I usually um, compost them to be able to, uh, you know, turn them back into soil, basically, is uh, the the thing that I usually do with the uh, the vegetables in the stock afterwards. So um, instead of throwing them out, try composting them, a much better way uh, to be able to use those. But if you want to be able to add a little bit of texture into things, you can absolutely add them into them. But remember, they've been cooked so long that they're going to be really mushy, so you're not going to get a lot of texture. The flavor has been pretty much taken out of them or blended with all the other things in there. So... Um, I would recommend, you know, using them for compost. But again, feel free to be able to do whatever you'd like with them. I see a lot of students trying to think of inventive ways to be able to use them in their cooking, um, either as filler into things. You can put them into, you know, different dishes, like maybe a shepherd's pie or something like that if you'd like to. Um, but just remember that the flavor profiles changed a little bit from the way that they were originally put into it. Um, and there's not going to be a lot of uh, vitamins or nutrients left in them because you're putting them in the stock, which is the intention of doing that. Great question, Rene. All right, Vicky, do tower gardens produce the same quality of nutrients as one grown in dirt or found in stores? Yes, actually they do. I used to work for a foundation that gave away tower gardens called Whole Kids Foundation, um, and we gave gardens to schools. Uh, it was a great foundation, still is in existence today. It's under an arm of Whole Foods Markets. Um, and tower gardens are wonderful because uh, you can grow them indoor and under lights, uh, you know, if you're in the winter, um, if they're not near a sun source, but um, you can grow them inside and get wonderful, wonderful produce off of them that, uh, you know, is a great way to be able to show kids how uh, to grow vegetables, but also just a great source to be able to get um, different, you know, varieties of plants, um, even off season. Um, just by growing them in the tower garden versus uh, outside. Now, typically tower gardens are using kind of, uh, it's like a plug that kind of goes into it. Some of them have like a nutrient soil kind of thing that goes with them, but typically the water that is circulating through the towers has nutrients that have been added to those. And those nutrients are what the plants are, they're getting the water, they're getting those nutrients to be able to pull in there as well. So you'll see that most, um, you know, most, tower gardens will come with a certain type of nutrient additive that they like to be able to put in with those plants. Now, different ones have different proprietary blends, um, but the more you research tower gardens and maintenance and ways to be able to keep your plants going, you'll find that everybody has a, their own kind of unique take on that, but they absolutely incorporate nutrients into those. So um, you, you will get the same amount of nutrients and you'll get the same amount of vitamins as one that you would find in a store. Um, and you'll get a little bit bit uh, cleaner flavor than you would in the ground sometimes because the ground can sometimes affect other things, you know. So um, it's one of the great things about planting in the garden, you know, in, in the soil. But also, you know, if you're looking for a consistent plant in the tower garden, that's a great way to be able to do that. So I uh, hope that helps, Vicki. Fran, wonderful to see you here. Um, 
So uh, I had a student in essential uh, vegan desserts use a black bean aquafaba, great bean water to color her meringues purple. It had more flavor. Not recommended. Aquafaba can be frozen too. Good point, Fran. So um, Fran, uh, you know, developed the essential vegan desserts um, for Ruby. She's fantastic, fantastic chef um, and friend and just Great advice from this as well. So the black bean aquafaba, which is great. The bean water, again, protein rich, being able to, uh, you know, have the colorization of that, which is great to make it purple. How fun. Um, and I, that's a great point that aquafaba can be frozen. So it's a great thing to be able to do. You can also throw it in the freezer. So, um, you know, if you know, you're not going to use it right away, put it in the freezer, seal it on up. You can use it for later. Great to see you, friend. Hope you're doing well. All right, Janet, uh, chef, you should be, you should add, should you add baking soda while you soak your beans? Thank you. I, this does, uh, this is, I've heard this before and I'm not a big fan of adding baking soda to while you soak your beans. I think just water is fine when you're soaking them. I typically for any bean, I'm just going to soak them overnight to be able to do that. They say that baking soda can actually, you know, give them a little more tenderization. We'll get rid of some of the gases. I don't really think that you need to put that step in there. One of the biggest things I do find when people are using baking soda, they're using too much, which is not good for actually doing that. So um, I typically just use water and that works just fine. Um, you know, people have been making beans for thousands and thousands of years. Baking soda is not something that they essentially put into it. Um, I think the water method works just fine. So yes, you can uh, just don't put too much in, um, but water works actually just just fine in the same way. Uh, Terry, uh, is there a way to make sauerkraut without using salts? Uh, yes, there is. You can also, there's a different fermentation method that you can do uh, to be able to make the, the fermentation happen for the sauerkraut as well without using salt. Um, you know, but uh, I'm not going to go into it too much right here. But if you do a little bit of research on that, you can find that you can do fermentations without using salt as well. Um, traditionally, you're going to use like a water uh, and uh, a water and salt brine to be able to make that happen. But there are alternative ways to be able to make that happen. Sally, Chef Dan, do you have any tips on pickling or fermenting food? Anyone in particular that you like to make? I love to pickle and ferment foods. Um, some of the ones I put into our plant-based pro course that I love are, I love to do a fermented sriracha, um, which I usually take Fresno peppers. Um, and I do kind of an Asian, you know, style one. So I do ginger, um, Fresno peppers and garlic, um, blend those all up and then let them sit for about seven days, you know, stirring once a day and then adding vinegar to those. And it's a fantastic uh, sriracha um, that has just a slightly different flavor. And you can go more traditional and just do the garlic with no ginger if you want more kind of the, you know, the rooster style kind of sriracha, if you'd like that to have the garlic sriracha. Um, that's one of the ones that I love to always have in the fridge. Um, I also love to do pickled onions, just a quick pickled onion where it's just, you know, heating up um, a vinegar water mixture with some salt, pouring it over some red onions with some peppercorns in there. 
Um, just the other day, I also did banana peppers, you know, where I added a little bit of dill, I added a little bit of sugar into that as well, which I don't normally put sugar um, in many things, but that's one of those things. Um, it's just a recipe that my grandma used to make and it's just a kind of a throwback for me. So that's just banana peppers sliced with some peppercorn, some dill, uh, vinegar, water, sugar, and salt mixture and they come out fantastic um you know but there are also like green tomatoes like cherry tomatoes i love to be able to do in the summer or in the spring um early summertime to be able to do those is one of my you know favorite things to be able to do um you know for tips on those that's why i didn't want to go too far into the fermenting um, or doing sauerkraut without the salt uh, you just want to make sure that you're careful about doing them because there are uh things that can go wrong when you're fermenting um, foods. Pickling's a little bit different, um, but just, uh, you know, do a little bit of research and make sure you're, you're either following a recipe from a reputable source. Um, there are a lot of forums out there specifically on fermenting and pickling, which I would highly recommend to be able to go check out. There are a lot of them on a platform called Reddit uh, that are specifically around fermenting um, and a lot of fun kitchen things on there as well, too. Um, and I think there are some on Facebook as well. So definitely check some of those out. Um, but yeah, fermenting foods, great fun thing to be able to do. Um, you know, I've been looking at doing some, like some, like some, uh, tempeh as well too, and looking at other ways to be able to make, um, fun fermented foods like misos and stuff, but, um, all kinds of fun experiments to do in the kitchen. So happy cooking with that, Sally. All right, Beth, what is your favorite brand of chef's knife and honing tool? Um, so it's, we get this question quite often about chef knives. And I, I think that the best answer for this is it's going to be different for everyone. Um, what I recommend doing is going into a store that has a wide variety of different chef knives and putting them physically in your hand, see how it feels in your hand, holding it, do a couple rocks on a cutting board or something like that as well too, if you're able to, um, to be able to see what works best for you. Now, that being said, uh, there are also huge varieties of different kinds of prices on chef knives. So you can go anywhere from like a $20 chef knife to a $500 chef knife. And those $500 chef knives, you know, are, I, I wouldn't say that they're any better than, you know, a much lower priced one. Um, they're just usually made of different uh, materials or they have very unique things about them. Now, uh, at my in my own knife block at home, uh, I pretty much have it all filled with Wusthof knives. So I have a couple Wusthof classic chef knives that I put in there as well. I have a vet, uh, uh, like a Wusthof, uh, what is it, a vegetable chef knife, which has the holes in it, so things fall off of it as well too. But on uh, when I'm cooking professionally and I'm out either catering on something like that, I use Shun. Uh, chef knives. Now, um, that's, you know, what's the difference kind of in those? Um, the shun that I use is actually called a Ken onion, um, which is discontinued now. But one of the things I love about it is on the top of the blade. So if you're holding the blade like this on the very top of it, when you wrap your fingers around, there's a little thing right here that protects your finger from getting your chef callus on it, which is wonderful. I love that. And so when I'm doing catering gigs and stuff like that, I'm chopping you know, hundreds of onions. Um, in, you know, if I'm using like a Wusthof classic, I'm getting that kind of uh, blister on the inside of my finger, no matter, you know, how long I've been cooking, that always happens on the Wusthof classics. 
Um, but on some other varieties, I know I think it's Mercer also makes another one like that that has that little kind of bump on the so on the top of it, which you can wrap your finger around and it protects your finger, which I love that aspect of that uh, Shen Shun Ken Onion. Um, you know, I think it's an eight inch chef knife. Uh, you can still find those out there, but they're really really expensive now because they've been discontinued for like five years. Um, but True answer is uh, kind of Wustoff is kind of the one that I have at home most of the time. Um, but I do use a wide variety of different um, knives from, um, you know, from the Mercer brands, from the like the the icons, all kinds of other knife brands out there. But really the best advice I have for you is to see what feels best in your hand and always keep it sharp using the honing tool, which is the second part of this question. On a honing tool, I don't have a specific brand I like. What I do is I usually go to a restaurant supply store and I look for a diamond tipped honing tool. And I usually don't like the round ones as much. I usually like the ones that are a little oblong um, because you can get a better feel of where you're at on it. So you see a lot of chefs, you know, when they're um, honing their knife and they're like going back and forth like this, which is something I personally do as well. But because my honing tool is a little oblong, it's easier for me to feel my knife and um, when I'm going back and forth on that to be able to find the angle that I'm looking for on that. Um, so I actually love that. So two things is one, look for an oblong one. And the second thing is look for diamond tipped because it actually keeps sharper longer. Because, um, you know, being a chef is, or, you know, a, a cook as long as I have, um, it's uh, honing tools wear out. So you can wear out the end of them. So I've gone through many, many of them. So I think a diamond tipped and I love the oblong ones um, and no brand specific at all, at all on those. If you get those two things, you're gonna be pretty set. All right, Alicia, what do you consider the correct length of time to have the beef bone for soup to, to avoid overcooking? Thank you. Um, I'm not 100% sure how to answer that one uh, because I don't cook beef. So the correct length of time to have the beef bone for soup to avoid overcooking. I'm sorry, Alicia, I don't know how to answer that one. So we will send it to our help desk and uh, you'll hear back from somebody to answer that question for you. Um, all right. So back to the sauerkraut question for Terry. Can you pickle the cabbage instead of fermenting it? If yes, how would you do it? Yes, you totally can pickle um, the, the sauerkraut the sauerkraut at the same time. So I usually will also use that same kind of blend of that, but you could do a hot vinegar over the top of that um, cabbage. And you can do the same kind of ingredients you're doing in your sauerkraut if you'd like to. It is going to taste a little bit different because part of what makes it, um, you know, the salt helps that kind of uh, sauerkraut break down. Now, one thing that you can do on this, if you're really trying to avoid the salt, is you can um, salt your cabbage beforehand and then rinse it off. It's a very common thing to do with kimchi. Usually when I'm making kimchi, I will heavily salt my cabbage. Um, and then afterward, I'll you know rinse it off because what you're doing is breaking down the cellular walls of that cabbage. So you're getting that um, the consistency and texture you're looking for, but I don't want all the salt in it as well. Now, some people would say, you're not supposed to rinse it off, just brush it off. I usually just don't want all that salt. So I'll, I'll wash it off at the same time. Now, if you want to pickle it, you can do a quick pick a quick pickle just using um, your vinegar water mix as well without the, uh, the, the sugar or the salt in that. But the flavor uh, and texture will turn out a little bit different. Just do a little experimentation with that. You know, if you want to do your 
your caraway seeds or your apple or something in that it'll actually all work in the same way um but your salt is part of that process typically on making that sauerkraut all right so uh kimberly hello chef dan when making tempeh for the first time which i plan on trying later today any suggestions i'm planning on steaming then frying it on the griddle not sure why i'm afraid of it so making it meaning you're actually you're not making the tempeh you're you're cooking the tempeh after it's uh, okay so um yeah one of the first things i always tell people to do is for tempeh i love to actually put it in a, a water and boil off um boil it and this is actually just something that i've done for years when i first became you know when i first started cooking tempeh i didn't really do it as much and it always had, had this kind of interesting kind of uh well, it's it is it's like a fermentation flavor to it, but there was something a little off that I didn't really like much on it. And a chef gave me a tip of uh, putting it in water and boiling it for about five minutes and then taking it out. And it's amazing the difference on that. So do that first and then prepare it however you're going to prepare it. So uh, that's one of the first things I do is just in the whole block is I'll take water, boil it for about five minutes, a little bit. You don't want it to start crumbling apart. Um, and then after you have that, you can you can definitely steam it, um, you know, which is great to be able to to have it to kind of heat up. Now, if you're going to fry it, just slice it, you know, uh, thin to be able to make that happen. Now, if you're going to use oil, that's great. Just make sure that, um, you know, like because if you're boiling it and then if you're going to steam it, you don't want to steam it too long because it can start to fall apart, especially if you're going to be frying it and flipping it like that um, on the griddle. So uh, just watch how long you're going to steam it beforehand. A lot of people say if you steam it, you can skip the process of boiling. I just find that it works a lot better if I actually boil it to be able to get rid of that kind of off flavor as well. Um, and then make sure to, before you start frying it, to season it beforehand. So put your seasonings on there and then get it um, into fry. You can add more seasoning afterward, but I love before I actually get it into the griddle, if you're going to fry it, it actually helps to absorb some of the flavors um, by seasoning it beforehand as well. So uh, it should be great. Don't have any worries about that. It's an easy product to be able to use. Um, you know, getting it uh, to perfection is actually pretty easy. So the more you do it, the better you're going to get at this, Kimberly. Good luck. Happy cooking. All right, Sandra. Uh, hello, Dan. And what, in your, in your opinion, do you think is the best chef knife for an eight-inch? So again, I'd probably go back to that um, same, you know, kind of a thing. Like an eight-inch chef knife. Uh, I think that there isn't a best. There's a best for you, and that really all comes down to how the knife feels in your hand. Um, I have bigger hands, so a bigger handle worked really well for me. Um, also, the way I hold my knife is I'm always going to wrap my top finger over the top of the blade of, of it like that. So um, that's one of the things I love about that one, the uh, Shun Ken Onion Knife, because it has that guard if I'm doing lots and lots of cooking. Um, but otherwise, I'm just going to use a standard, you know, a Wustoff uh, Classic at home. Now, the Mercer brand is really great. They've, they've you know, sent me a lot of fun things in those two. There are a lot of great other brands out there. And I think really it just kind of comes down to each person. Um, and I think that the Wustoff thing just started for me when I was much younger, where I just kept adding a knife, you know, every so often to my knife block. So now it's full and I've got a whole knife block full of, you know, the Wustoffs, which is great. But that might not work for everybody. Um, and experimentation with that is 
part of you know cooking um and the more you cook the more you're going to find other knives and there might be specialty knives or a special maker of knives you know where it's handmade those are all great things to experiment with so hope that helps cynthia great seeing you again um chef dan would you share with us your recipe for pickled onions we might have to wait until your next live event to see it though patience is a good thing to develop um so yeah my pickled uh onion recipe is actually one i think it's actually the one that's on ruby i think i filmed that one um and it's basically you know slicing red onions very thin um and then taking just you know probably like 10 peppercorns i'm talking about using like one of the smaller jar jars it's not a quart jar it's one of the smaller kind of jelly jars is typically what i do with those so <clears throat> i'll put in um the black peppercorns maybe like 12 of them i'll put in a clove of garlic and smash it before putting it into the jar and then i will do probably about the liquid will be about half and half water versus uh uh, water versus vinegar, and then probably put about a tablespoon of salt into it, maybe a little bit less than a tablespoon. Um, and I typically will just put the water, vinegar, and salt into a pan, bring it up to a boil, and as soon as it brings it to a boil, I'll pour it over the onions and um, over the black or over the onions, and then seal the top of the jar. Um, shake it up a little bit to make sure that uh, the peppercorns and everything kind of goes around. Sometimes I might add dill to that, but it's pretty rare that I would. Um, but then shake that up and let it sit for at least probably a day and put it in the fridge afterward as well too. Um, but that's, it's super simple. It's like, there's no exact ingredient, you know, amounts to them. Um, but it works really well for me and I use it all the time. In fact, I just made them the other day for tacos. So they're fantastic. All right. Uh, so Susan, I just started using soy curls. Any thoughts and recommendations? You know, soy curls are one of those things in the vegetarian world and plant-based world that have been around for a very long time. And you can use them in a huge variety of ways, along with textured vegetable protein, all the new kind of things too, that are with the, um, you know, like the, the crumbles, the, you know, meat crumbles that are fake meat, all of those things can be uh, used in a huge variety of different ways. So you can use them for, you know, toppers on things. You can use them for taco meats and season them like tacos. You can, um, you know, like there's a huge variety of ways. So we would, uh, you know, you can put them into things like the, I was talking about the uh, shepherd's pie earlier. Soups, another great thing to be able to put them into as well. If you're going to do something like a soup, I would recommend seasoning them first as you're hydrating them. Because usually, depending on the soy curl you're getting, you have to hydrate them first. So make sure to hydrate them, cook them off a little bit with the seasoning that you're going to add them into. But very versatile product. Lots and lots of recipes out there. Um, not as many people use them now as they used to, which is interesting. But, um, you know, it's something that's been around in the plant-based world for a very long time. Peter, Chef Dan, speaking about knives, what is the best way to store them when not in use? Magnetic bar versus block versus blade cover in a storage bag. Those are all great ways to be able to store them. So um, I, at home, I have a knife block and my knife block is wooden and I store my knives in there. Now there is the like there is the contention that people will say, well, you're you're dulling the knife as you're putting it into the, the knife block, but as long as it's a wooden one, it's not going to be too much. It's like you're cutting on the cutting board. So that's typically what I use at home. But I also have probably 20 knives in that knife block. Um, you know, so uh, 
if I were to have a magnetic bar, that'd be just too many for them. Now, if I were a type of person in my kitchen, just to, I'm just going to use six knives or something like that. That's great. Um, <clears throat> and I'd probably use something like a, a magnetic bar. But um, the block works for my use. Um, the magnetic bar is easy because you can just kind of grab them quick, fast, um, I guess just as fast as a block. Now, the my other blades, um, pretty much everything that I'm not using in a kitchen, if I'm using it for my um, any kind of restaurant work I do, any um, you know, any collaborations with any chefs, anything where I'm like you know not doing it at my home, uh, those are always I guess even catering stuff. Um, all of those are stored in a bag with the cover. So um, that uh, depending on the knife. Um, a lot of times they'll come with a plastic sheath or a cover that goes over the top of those. And so I'll keep the sheath over the top of it um, and then keep it rolled up in my knife bag with all the other tools in my knife bag. Um, but everything I always put in a bag, I'm always going to have a sheath or a cover for each individual knife to be able to make sure that I'm keeping the blade as sharp as possible. And then, of course, honing them when I get to sight to make sure that they're as sharp as possible. So at home, magnetic bar and, you know, a, a block. In an industrial kitchen, uh, definitely a magnetic bar versus a block. The blocks are much too hard to keep clean in industrial settings. Um, they also get in the way kind of a lot, you know, um, but it's just kind of something I grew up with and I've had the same knife block for probably 35 years. Um, it took me a very long time to fill those all, um, you know, so, uh, but, you know, again, um, just make sure that the, that if you're taking them anywhere that they actually have a cover for them. Um, and then at home, the magnetic bar versus the block totally work. Just it's a personal preference. Good question, Peter. All right, Jane, adding to the tempeh question, do you boil the water first before placing the tempeh in the water? I do actually. I usually, um, it might be, I might sometimes put it in, uh, you know, at the halfway point, but I'm at least going to get the, uh, the water to be hot before I put the tempeh in. It might not be like a rolling boil or anything like that. In fact, if it is a rolling boil, you might want to dial it back a little bit. The important thing is you don't want to boil the tempeh so much that it's starting to fall apart. You don't want it to crumble apart. So, um, but yeah, bring it to a boil and, you know, about the five minute mark and you'll, You'll see uh, if it's starting to kind of fall apart a little bit just by taking tongs or something onto it as well. Um, and when you bring it out, remember it's hot. You might want to tap it dry, um, you know, to get some of the moisture off if you're using either seasoning as well, too. Colleen, chef, what would be the first four knives from Wustoff a person might purchase? <laughs> uh, okay, so I would, <clears throat> your standard eight-inch chef knife is probably the very first one that I would get for anybody. It doesn't matter what brand, but that's typically an eight-inch chef knife is something I would go to. Um, and uh, after that would be a bread knife, um, you know, which is great to have. A uh, paring knife um, is definitely an essential. So um, a paring knife, and I have a couple different versions. I have like a, you know, a three-inch paring knife, and then I have a four to five-inch paring knife are probably the two that I use the most. Um, so that, those would probably be the first would be, uh, your chef knife, your bread knife and a paring knife are probably the, the three essentials that you would need from anything else. All the other knives that I have in my block are some variation of that. So, um, the eight inch chef knife, I have three versions of that in my knife block. And I have those because, um, you know, I cook 
often enough where I'm, you know, cleaning them and I have them on a drying rack to be able to dry them. Or if somebody else is in the kitchen cooking with me, I always want to be able to have them use the same tools that I'm using. Um, you know, so they're always accessible like that. Um, my paring knives, because I go through them again very quickly. I think I have like five of them in my knife block. Um, and then I always have the bread knife. Oh, I guess a serrated blade would be a good one. Um, I usually have, you know, like a tomato knife or something like that as a serrated uh, blade. Um, and I usually just keep like beyond the bread knife, um, you know, which is also serrated. I'll usually use just like a, probably it's like a six inch serrated blade that's on that as well. I can't remember what that one's called. Um, but those are all great knives to be able to just essentially have in your toolkit. Most important really though is your chef knife. That and a bread knife, and you can pretty much do anything you want to with those. Um, but yeah, the bread knife, chef knife, paring knife, I think are the three kind of go-tos. All right. Uh, what does miso paste do for a recipe when it calls for it? Well, that depends on the recipe, Sandra. Um, miso paste is wonderful just as a miso soup is fantastic. Um, I often will do a red miso paste uh, glaze on a mushroom, which is great. Um, you know, miso is a wonderful, it's a fermented soy. Typically, you can also do it out of other beans like chickpeas and stuff like that if you're trying to avoid the soy. Um, but uh, it is a fantastic product, adds a lot of umami for it, a real depth of flavor for things as well, too. Now, there are different kinds of miso out there, so I definitely want to give you fair warning on that as well. Um, you know, like typically in soups, you'll find like a mellow white miso, something like that, where it's just kind of this very light flavor for something where like a red miso is going to have a much bigger, bolder, pronounced flavor to it. Um, they work great for glazes. You can use them in dressings to be able to add a little bit of umami to them as well, too. Um, I love putting them in dressings, actually. I'll use the mellow white in recipes. Or I'll put in like a tofu, some vinegar, maybe some a different kind of a seaweed or something like that, um, you know, and make like a nice creamy but umami style dressing with those as well, too. Um, but soups, glazes, sauces, dressings, those are really where um, I'm going to use those miso pastes the most. And traditionally, it's going to be able to add a depth of flavor and a little bit of umami to them. Uh, Renee, are oils ever used in a whole food plant-based diet? If so, would you use oil? Would When would you use oil and what kind of oil? So in a whole food plant-based diet, oils are typically not used as much. And there's a lot of arguments between, you know, different sides on this. Because some people, when they say a whole food plant-based diet, are very, very strict on it. And if you look at what an oil is, it's basically like take olive oil for the, the example, right? Like how close does the product look to the original product, right? So how close does olive oil look to olives? And how many olives does it take to actually make olive oil? It's very processed to be able to get it to be at its end product. So any kind of an oil, avocado oil, canola oil, um, olive oil, all of those things are extremely processed to be able to get them to be the end result of this very fatty liquid. So it's 120 calories per tablespoon of any kind of oil, it doesn't matter what kind it is, without a whole lot of nutritional value to it. So because of that, most people that are following a whole food plant-based diet don't use oils. Now, um, I, you know, have many, 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 many years in whole food plant-based cooking and have developed lots and lots and 
lots of recipes for all kinds of companies across the world using whole food plant-based diet. I personally do use oil at home, but what I'll typically do is I'll use um, a small amount of oil to be able to make the nonstick surface. And I used to teach this at schools all the time because I would see they'd have these huge sheet pans and they'd take the spray oil, you know, and they'd put it on the pan and they'd just be like, go over it, over it, and just keep going and going and going. And I'm like, oh my gosh, how much of that do you really need? All you're trying to do is make a nonstick surface. So what I usually recommend to people is to put like just a drop of oil on whatever surface it is, whatever pan it is you're using, and then take a paper towel and wipe down the outside of it. That way you're not getting an excessive amount of oil. You're minimizing it to a very small amount, achieving the nonstick surface that you're talking about. Um, you know, when you're cooking with oil, especially at that very beginning stage, you're not cooking with it because you're looking for the flavor. You're typically trying to do it to be able to get the nonstick surface. Uh, there are other ways to do it without oil, which we do lots and lots of training on. But if you'd like to be able to use the oil, just try doing it that way where you use a very small amount of oil that's on the um, on the uh, surface to be able to make it to the nonstick surface. Now, if you're looking for oils for flavors, you typically will add those in at the end of um, a cooking process. Because if you're adding something like olive oil, a lot of people are like, I love the taste of olive oil, so I cook with it all the time. Well, typically, if you're cooking with olive oil, especially at the beginning, you're cooking off all the flavor of that olive oil flavor by the time you're done cooking. Um, if you're looking and you really like the flavor of olive oil, it's something you should add at the end because the subtle nuances of the flavor of olive oil will still be present in it if you put it on in its raw state over a cooked meal. So um, the short answer is that no, uh, oil is not part of a whole food plant-based diet, but it's one of those kind of contention, you know, one of those areas where people kind of are on the fence on. Some people do use them, some people don't. Um, I use them just out of ease to be able to make things go kind of fast, quick, and easy, um, which, you know, is not always the way to be able to eat a, a whole food plant-based diet. But uh, I'll, I'll let you make the choice. And if you want to use the oils in them, just know that uh, a lot of people would say absolutely not. It's not something you put in the uh, a part of a whole food plant-based diet. All right, Ingrid. What are your favorite five plant dishes you can eat all your life on an island looking for recommendations? Well, uh, let's see. That's that's a little hard, of course, but, um, you know, living in Texas, like almost 20 years, as long as I did, I think taco would have to be on that list. And we do a, some form of a taco pretty much every week at my house. We definitely throw different variations on it where sometimes it'll be, you know, like a refried bean, you know, taco, or sometimes it'll be like a bean mixture of pinto and black beans cooked with, you know, um, peppers and onions. Just this, just two days ago, I did like a style we did off of our plant, uh, plant pro class, which is just red peppers, green peppers, and then mushrooms and white onion sauteed with, um, lemon juice or lime juice over the top or black pepper a little bit of salt and just that as your taco filling with some cilantro, a little sliced up radish. Uh, so, so good. Um, you know, so tacos, there's so many different varieties to be able to do on tacos. That would probably have to be one of those because I can switch those things out all the time, depending on whatever ingredients I find on an island, right? So I can be able to switch those out. 
Um, pastas are always another big fun one for me just because I love the variety in them. Love making different kinds of pastas too. Pesto, probably one of my favorites, but also love to be able to experiment with things. I do a vegan carbonara I'll actually be making this weekend for some guests that's, uh, you know, a fantastic one that really impresses people at the same time, um, but really has that full flavor that you're kind of looking for in those two um you know i do uh like my kids love butter noodles and i do an adult butter noodle too where i'll add more flavors into them as well and that's just taking a plant-based butter with a little bit of garlic uh powder for the kids and for the adults i'll add you know some other flavor profiles into those as well um i love to do a zatar version of that as well too where um, adding zatar to that kind of butter noodle just adds so much flavor to it and very unique in a different kind of a way where you might add some you know sun-dried tomatoes or something into that as well so we've got a pasta dish we've got tacos um there's so many i mean that's a pretty wide variety in there as well too um you know probably like uh, every morning i always do a uh, almost every morning i do a breakfast burrito as well where i do a tofu scramble so some sort of tofu scramble will probably be on my list for those as well um you know uh yeah that's only three and it seems like i've covered so much already i love to do soups too so um you know that variety of soup uh, i always keep my scraps from um doing my prep and I will make a stock almost every week. Sometimes it's every two weeks. Then I'll come up with a different soup each week. So this week I made a tortilla soup. Um, and I used uh, trumpet mushrooms and then used a technique where you scrape them with the fork to make them shredded. So it's almost like a shredded chicken. Um, and then you saute those down in your soup pot with some uh, nice white onions. Um, then add some boro sauce with uh, the chipotle peppers, uh, can of um you know diced tomato and then do the stock into that as well and again with some cilantro and some sliced radish in that super super good very spicy depending on how much you put in there oh yeah because i also put a jalapeno in it this week um you know so soup's definitely kind of high on that list as well and that's a Thing is like you're you're probably asking for specific dishes but i'm giving you just kind of wide ideas of different ways to go because those soups you know like like this week like i said i made the tortilla soup but i think last week it was a potato leek soup you know and that's super simple where it's just leeks uh sauteed down and then you add in your potatoes your stock and then lots of pepper you know into it and just that simple thing with a little bit of almond milk in just for you know the creaminess too just super super good um and those are just kind of you know really easy quick dishes to do i also do, did a carrot ginger too um the week before that where it's just lots of carrots you know onion um and ginger cook it all down in your stock and then blend it up and then you just do a drizzle of some like a, i do like a silken tofu you know, with lemon um, juice and blend that up and you can do a nice, you know, decoration on the top. Super great, good for the soul, super good for you. So there's a lot of different ways to be able to go on that one. I hope that helps Ingrid. Well, it actually brings us to the end of our live session. So thank you for joining us for Ask Me Anything Hours. I hope you learned something and join us again soon and happy cooking. <laughs>